This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Clive Barker podcast. I'm Joe, and I'm joined as always by Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. I I I'm, I feel so bad because I feel like the the malleable nature of what this is means you have to come up with like a new <laughs> a new intro, a new every subtitle time. every time we do this. <laughs> so I more power to you. I, I I don't think I would be able to keep up with that. You know what? We're making our way through it. It's it's all coming out fine, so it's not a huge deal. <laughs> but uh, we are firmly in Clyde Barker territory because we're talking about Books of Blood, Volume 2. And Brian, I'm curious, how did you find this volume in comparison to the first one? Mm. I know, it's a tricky question. And I've been thinking about this. I actually put it in my notes, like, what are Volume 2 versus Volume 1? Mm-hmm. Um because it's also tricky because part of me liked volume two more than volume one, but I don't know to mm. what degree it is just because <laughs> we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. I have had this omnibus of books of blood volumes one through three for like 15 years. Right. And I kind of keep, I had this, this bad habit of, I kept starting it with the intent mm-hmm. of reading through all of it, but I would maybe get through a few stories in volume one and then put it down and then never get back to it. Right. Uh, to the point where, where my partner was like, I'm so sick of seeing that book. Please just finish it or get rid of it. Or get rid of it. it just anymore. put it aside. Yeah. <laughs> But how it would actually turn out would be I would wind up reading the same few stories from volume one over and over again to the point where, like, I think they had gotten a little bit stale for me. So Mm -hmm. So now you're in new territory. Yes. Yeah. At least one. I recognized one of these uh, as one that I had read before. Uh, But the rest of them were a lot fresher. So I think Hmm. there's just a little bit like, you know, short story, new relationship energy that I have going with that. Right. Yeah, you're reading things for the first time, and it's exciting and different and new. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, why don't we start off with, unfortunately, what I think is the best story. And I say unfortunate because I think the second volume really hits the ground running with this first story. And then the rest of them are pretty good to okay. But this first one is a bit of a banger, in my opinion. Which is funny because it's my least favorite one of volume two. What? <laughs> Brian, you're rocking my world. When we read this for Horror Queers Book Club, everybody was unanimous like, oh my gosh, Dread is the one to beat. Uh, it's, uh, I think my my sticking point on on this one is that Quaid, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, for, for those hearing this uh, who, who might not be familiar, Dread is about a young university student named Steve who gets kind of caught up with this mm-hmm. guy named Quaid, who he sees as kind of like a an intellectual so cool. guru kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this guy Quaid it kind of takes him down this road of investigating or exploring the notion of dread mm-hmm. and what that means and how uh, for, for Quaid, basically, that's our core feeling. Like everything comes back to dread and what right. we do to push that away and what we do to ignore it and how like we can't ultimately do that. Mm-hmm. And he does it in this very 
I don't know. Like, he's basically like... He's a mad scientist. But for me, he's an even less interesting Frank Cotton. Like, he's oh. just like... He thinks of himself as way more interesting than he actually is. And in this case, sure. it's in an academic sphere than in, you know, an erotic sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so where the Hellbound Heart works for me is because Frank is more of a background character, or at least... I think he's you know more secondary to right. uh, Kirsty and and Julia. Uh, mm-hmm. Here, Quaid is just like on every single page, yeah. and he's just one of those guys that you just want to. I just want to choke him. Like he's just like <laughs> he's just awful. And I know he that's really the is. point. I you know I, I know that's you know there's there's no you know <laughs> I'm sure Barker would have no qualms about saying like yeah no he's terrible, mm-hmm. but there's only like so much of that I can take. So it just grated on me after a little while. Okay. That's interesting. So you really had a kind of emotional reaction to this character and not liking him, even though you recognize that that was the intention of the story, but it doesn't mean that your reading experience was pleasurable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, yeah. he definitely executed. And by he, I mean, Barker executed right. what he wanted to do here. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is, there are definitely good elements to it. And I don't think there's anything in terms of like anything lacking in Barker's mm-hmm. writing ability or crafting the story. This is just down to personal preference in terms of like the types of characters that I either like or don't like. And in this okay. case, Quaid just kind of, you know, just kind of yeah. was a little great. It's not your bag. Yeah. I get that. I get that. I think the reason that I responded so strongly to this is that it is Barker writing in what feels like a very different kind of story than what we've come to expect from him. So there's no monsters. It's not supernatural. This is human villains. And I also really enjoy the payoff where so much of what Quaid is doing is because he himself is terrified of dread. Like Mm -hmm. he is actively looking for ways to combat it because he... He almost considers himself superior to it. And then what ends up happening is he creates his own destruction. And I really liked that kind of payoff where it did feel, I mean, we'll talk about Edgar Allan Poe later on, but it feels Edgar Allan Poe-ish to me when Steve ends up becoming the instrument, like he's crafted into something that will ultimately destroy Quaid because Quaid is full of hubris. Yeah, and I will say that is the one element of the story that I really did like. It's that I'm a sucker for like those self-fulfilling prophecy endings mm-hmm. where it's it's almost like the O. Henry thing where it's just so ironic and like the kind of poetic <laughs> justice thing. So the idea that, yeah, he goes to these extremes in order to guard himself from this thing that terrifies him only to create it himself is mm-hmm. is definitely something that I did appreciate. And Again, going back to that idea of, you know, an unlikable character, but one that is written well. Right. Part of why Quaid gets under my skin, like, especially when you realize that this all comes down to him being terrified himself, it's so emblematic of the problems that cis white men create for people because Mm -hmm. of their own deep down insecurities uh, right and that might be like it might be just like it hit a little too close to home for me like maybe that's also what bothers me about it because it's just mm. like you know you mentioned this is a very this is one of barker's most realistic stories or at least like reality-based stories there's not mm-hmm. really any supernatural elements to this 
And it's just a reminder that you're like, yeah, dudes like this exist and they yeah. are awful. And uh, what's even worse is that a lot of them don't get that comeuppance at the end that Quaid gets. So, you know, maybe mm-hmm. there's that that bit of my subconscious that was just like discomforted by the whole idea. I can totally, totally see that. I think I was almost swept away because the story is told from Steve's perspective for the most part, and mm-hmm. we end up having to unfortunately watch him kind of disintegrate under the weight of Quaid's experiment. It completely destroys his psyche so that by the end of the book, he almost doesn't even know who he is anymore. And it's satisfying because that results in Quaid's comeuppance, but it's horrifying what happens to Steve and mm-hmm. to a lesser extent, this female classmate who is subjected to terrible abuses as well. But I was just so taken with some of the human drama. Like I've definitely found myself in a situation where I have idolized the wrong people. I become Mm. not even like sexually obsessed with them, but just they're so enigmatic. Like the idea of who Quaid is to Steve is very relatable to me. And particularly this is set in a college university kind of setting. So it's right on the cusp of adulthood when you kind of think you know who you are, but you realize, oh, I still got a bunch of learning and growing up to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And and they kind of explore that, the predatory side of that relationship, too, where they mm-hmm. point out that, that Quaid is 30 and Steve is 20. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's a huge discrepancy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's very interesting that Barker, he seems very pointed and not making this a sexual relationship yes. you know it's kind of almost like you know okay well you think the queer author is going to take it this way fuck you we're gonna uh-huh. we're gonna uh-huh. leave that out of it yeah there, there's almost no sexuality here at all right? yeah but we're gonna leave everything else kind of about that kind of relationship in it we're just gonna take the sex out of it mm-hmm. yeah it's a hierarchy it's a power play for sure but it's yes. not sexual yeah yeah so i i appreciate that like you know Barker loves to subvert even even expectations about what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, before we move on to the next short, uh, we should acknowledge that Dread was adapted into a 2009 British film by Anthony de Blasi. And uh, the word on the street is that this is not a good adaptation. And you and I have decided that we will not cover it in its own independent feature like The Midnight Meat Train Simply because a, I, I don't want to ruin my experience with the short by watching a bad adaptation. And you were just like, I did not care for this. So I'm not actually interested in watching the film. So we're just yeah. taking that off the docket. I don't want to see Quaid in a feature film. I'm, I'm Fair. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we move on to the second short, which is Hell's Event. What did you think of this one? This one is, I think, messy. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. I agree. Not necessarily in a way that I think is bad. Maybe oh, not. Oh, okay. Okay. Not entirely. <laughs> We're like, how shall we dance around this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, my, my big note for this is I'm not 100% sure where I land on how Barker explores race in this story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I guess we should get a little bit into this, too, because there's a literal race. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not talking about the race run. We're talking about color. Yes. Yeah. So there is um, this charity event. Uh, It's this long distance run where a bunch of kind of all star runners are getting together. Uh, What they don't know is that this is secretly a 
centennial tradition, like every hundred years, mm-hmm. um, Satan sends one of his representatives to run in this race and nobody else knows. Mm-hmm. And so if this demon or representative avatar, however you want to say it, wins the race, then he gets to rule the the planet. Yep. And our main focus in terms of the, the human runner is a black man named Joel. Well, sort of our main focus. Yeah, yeah. And that's <laughs> where, you know, like uh, the perspective of this story shifts several times. Yes. And I would argue not to the betterment of the story. Yeah, I, I think you could I, I think you could make that argument because at one point we're following Joel's coach. At one point we're following a politician named Gregory who's kind mm-hmm. of like part of this cabal that is helping hell with mm-hmm. with this event. Yeah. Nefarious machinations. Yes, yes. Whereas I do think if they would A given Joel more spotlight and B mm-hmm. not had uh, a white man write the story, then we probably would have had something maybe a little bit more interesting. I do think uh, Barker tries to touch on it, but I think even he recognizes his own limitations because I think he only does some some surface level investigation yeah. of of Joel's race as it applies here. Yeah, mm-hmm. which. I would rather him do that than to try and dive too deeply and just royally fuck it up. Well, but here's the thing. I mean, I'm I'm in full agreement with everything that you're saying. We should obviously acknowledge that these volumes were written in the mid to late 80s. It doesn't mm-hmm. excuse Barker, but it was a different time where we didn't have like sensitivity readers. We couldn't do focus groups or consultation. Well, we could have, but it wasn't happening, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, okay, props to Barker for trying to do a different type of protagonist. We don't see a lot of people of color in his stories from what we've read thus far, but there's also nothing in this story that needed Joel to be a black man, and it's True. handled so as you said, shallowly. It's so surface level. It's so cursory. Part of me was just like, why do this to yourself? You're not (laughs) doing a good job of it. So why not do a better job by just removing that from the equation? I do think the the only thing that I appreciated a little bit, and I don't know if it was even done on purpose, is that, and this is a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read it, Mm -hmm. while the, the story does skip between different people, I would say Joel gets a majority of the the perspective, at least through the the middle two thirds of the story, right. and then he's kind of facing off against this demon. He realizes what's going on, and he at one point needs to like he winds up struggling with the demon, and the demon bites his face off. And it's yeah. kind of one of those things where it's this very abrupt, like, oh, oh, shit. Like You thought this character was going to survive till the end or at least be the protagonist? No, yeah. he's dead. Um, and on one hand, it's like, you know, you you have one person of color in all of these stories. And mm-hmm. this is how, how he, he ends up. But I think there's something to be said about the fact that this is a story where Joel does like 99% of the work to save mm-hmm. humanity. Gets and killed then somebody for his gets effort, the credit. and then a white man just <laughs> runs on by him, wins, yeah. and gets the credit for it, mm-hmm. like without even recognizing, like not even that he like stole the credit. He just didn't even know what right. this black man had done <laughs> to, done to like work. keep him safe. Uh, yeah, but it's also one of those things. It's like, was Barker being that clever, or I is that just think yeah, so. yeah? No. no, it's 
And you said messy when you were introducing this, and I do agree with that. We praise Barker's other stories for pivoting midway and doing something unexpected that we, you know, didn't really see coming. And I think that's what he's kind of trying to do here. You know, it starts off as a generic race within the city limits, and then all of a sudden we're battling for basically who's going to rule Earth. Like it's all of humanity is wrapped up in the outcome of this race. And that's really fun and interesting, but by shifting the perspectives too frequently, none of the characters really come to fruition. Like, we don't Mm -hmm. have any fully developed characters, so it becomes more a story about humanity that's anchored by a Black man that isn't particularly well-written. And then you're right, it's, yeah, like, we get this sort of amusing commentary on how white people just sort of step on people of color and don't even maybe realize it. But I, I do think that is too generous a reading for the time that Barker's <laughs> writing in. Yeah, I could I could see that argument, definitely. Uh, yeah, so not, not our favorite, but what did you think about the third story, Jacqueline S. Her Will and Testament? I really like this one. Uh, I yeah. like this one a lot. I wouldn't necessarily put this as like a favorite, but okay. it's definitely in the, the upper half. Okay. If not, maybe a little bit like maybe top third, something like that. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the the Julia Cotton vibes that I get right. a little bit from Jacqueline. You know, uh-huh. this, this woman who is tired of men's shit. So she is going <laughs> to... She's just going to own it. She's going to take, take control. The yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, in this one, you could even say, like, whereas Julia Cotton was, you know, the joke we like to make is she's following that good dick. Uh, Jacqueline has no interest in that. Like, not that Mm-mm. she's not that she's not interested in sex. And I think she's a pretty fully developed character. I agree. Which is saying something, again, because it's written by a man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she is dangerous she is uh, so uh you know again just a little bit of a an intro uh she is a housewife fully in the throes of depression when we meet her uh, mm-hmm. actually to the point where she attempts suicide and she doesn't succeed and when she is sent to the doctor the doctor is such a condescending oh ass so that patronizing it, it triggers these telekinetic powers that she has where basically she can shape people's bodies to whatever form she wants. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. The language, the oh. body horror in mm-hmm. this short is so fucking good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can just like, you almost feel the crunchiness and mm-hmm. the squishiness of everything that's going on. Uh, because this is not a thing where she's like, uh, she she's not making like people into like mystical creatures or something no. like that. She is warping their bodies into just god awful mm-hmm. configurations of just messy gore and viscera. Yeah, it's like Rubik's cube, the human version, but then like oh, just the the language that Barker is pulling out. It's so squishy and mm-hmm. vivid, and yeah, I think you said crunchy too. It just. Words that should not be associated with the human body, especially uh-huh. when you're thinking about somebody using their brain to just break somebody else's body down. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's it's kind of the thing where it's like, you know, those of us with darker imaginations wonder, like, what would Professor X do if he really leaned into some mm. of the fucked up things you could do with telekinesis? And this yes. leans into that really hard. Like, you get one, I forget what she does exactly to the doctor, but a few other guys. One guy, she just basically, like, bisects and just splits his skin open from the middle, just oh. down his center line. Oh, it's so gross. <laughs> I think the best way I can describe the one guy, she basically just packs him into a suitcase 
suitcase. Like he basically mm-hmm. turns into a suitcase. Uh, yeah. And then I think my favorite is the rich man. So she she basically wants to learn how to negotiate not the power, but how to kind of capitalize on the power. So she ends up meeting this man who is like a Fortune 500 CEO, and she wants him to teach her in exchange for like basically she she becomes a sex worker. Mm-hmm by choice and she is owning that but it's not about the sex really it's about like how do i wield power how do i demand attention and and this kind of stuff so this man she ends up enticing him into an affair but he gets scared of her because of her power because Mm -hmm. of how commanding she is and one of the recurring things in the short that i really enjoyed is how once people are confronted with her like they don't even know what she can do but like once they start to even get a glimpse of it they become obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. So this man, he eventually ends up trying to send like assassins after her. She does away with them very easily. And then he finally ends up confronting her in this hotel room. And she turns him into some kind of cross between a crab and a dog. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, so gnarly. And I loved it so much. Yeah. No, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a part of what I appreciated with this is that it's kind of like a sampler of all the different types of men that make mm-hmm. women's life more difficult. So yes. like you get the the oblivious husband or the mm-hmm. the condescending doctor. Uh you get the entitled rich guy. You get mm-hmm. the just flat out like balls to the wall misogynist um that uh you know his uh oh like the, the, the rich guy, guy's right? assistant. Well no the rich oh, guy's mm-hmm. assistant that's trying to blackmail him. Right. Which is kind of what really puts him in Jacqueline's crosshairs. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the one that just like starts just dropping all the really vile, like, you know, he oh, drops right. the C bomb. He's just yep. calling her every name in the book. And he's the one that she just splits in half. And it's just so yep. satisfying. I, I think there there's an interesting element of like wish fulfillment in some of this where it's just like, wouldn't you mm-hmm. love to just be able to like take this guy and rip him in half? Yeah, it's almost like revenge body porn. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, Jacqueline, like throughout all of this, is just struggling, you know, and it's not bringing her happiness. No. Yeah. No, it's not like she's this anti-hero vigilante. She is trying to come to terms with who she is and what she can do and the fact that like the world doesn't like women like her beyond mm-hmm. beyond just the fact that like the the supernatural power she has uh just someone who doesn't want to be in any one of the like the roles that we typically want to put women into yeah and i think the the through line with all of this is the very tragic it's sweet but it's also fucked up the love oh, story yes. between her and i believe his name is vasi yeah the lawyer the lawyer who just becomes obsessed with her. Like he, mm-hmm. he torpedoes uh, his entire yeah. life for mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's definitely some like creepy stalker vibes with what he brings to the table. But, mm-hmm. but he's also the sweetest guy in the story who yes. genuinely likes her for her ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it becomes like, it's blurring that line between loving her for her and kind of like, deifying and objectifying her at the same time mm-hmm. yeah he puts her up on a pedestal in a way that is still it's uncomfortable in a different sense exactly yeah 
it's kind of one of those things where the, he could have taken it, uh, and by he I mean Barker, in mm-hmm. a direction where she rejects him and he can't accept it, and you know it kind of goes down that path. I, I think the way he takes it is a lot more tragically interesting and in a way beautiful. Right. So they they wind up. Uh, she becomes, um, you know, she kind of leans into the sex work, but also she's got like this guy who she has bring her men who she will basically give, and this is hints of Hellraiser, like the mm-hmm. ultimate sensual experience, but yes. it comes at a cost. Yes. You will not survive the encounter, but it will be unlike anything else you've ever experienced. Exactly. And then ultimately, Vassy finds her, and they basically like self-obliterate. Yeah, they like merge together yeah. and in the process die. Yes, and it's... Uh, physically and like aesthetically these are very different things but the mm-hmm. thing that this reminded me of was uh william friedkin's uh movie bug with oh, uh, michael okay. shannon and with ashley judd mm-hmm. where at the end of that movie they wind up in a just kind of fit of psychoses um burn themselves alive right and it's so sad Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also just like there's that bittersweetness of these two broken people who at least find some comfort in one another in their last moments, even yeah. though they're ultimately also responsible for destroying themselves. Um, yeah. So I definitely just there were the, my brain kind of made the connection between those two movies when I was or those two stories when I was reading this. Interesting. Yeah, this ended up being one of my favorite stories of this volume. I was a bit lukewarm reading it because it's it's actually quite a bit longer than I expected when I first started it. Mm. And then I kept thinking, okay, where's this going? Where's Where is it headed? And I can confess that when we talked about this one in the Horror Queers book club, every single female person in attendance was very uncomfortable with the fact that Jacqueline ends up becoming a sex worker. They, Mm. they did feel that it was misogynistic and that it wasn't handled all that well. Okay. I can definitely agree with that. I didn't feel that way until they raised it. And then when we unpacked it, I was like, yeah, okay, I can definitely see this setting that aside. However, the way that she and Vasily come back together and how they do, yeah, as you said, almost obliterate each other. I did think it was tragic and romantic and disturbing. Like, the payoff for me was really good. I just, yeah, there's a, a couple of uncomfortable speed bumps to get to there. Yeah, no, I can I can absolutely understand that. And it's, it's also recognizing that that ending is romantic in the same way that, like, Romeo and Juliet is romantic. Right. People shouldn't have to die for a romance yeah, to survive. <laughs> don't think about it too hard in terms of, like, the the real-world implication of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, on a, like, emo, gothy, kind of, like, broody way, there's something, you know, romantic and, and touching about it, even though you can also recognize that, like, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah, you're like, oh, we should not aspire to this. And yet, yeah. as you're reading it, it does seem almost sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that's, you know, another thing that Barker does. He takes these, what right. could be very ugly moments and either makes them very erotic or gives mm-hmm. them an emotionality and a, a sympathetic angle that other writers wouldn't take. Which I yeah. think fits well into our next story. Yeah, so the next one is The Skins of Our Fathers. 
it starts off in tried and true fashion with a lot of these. It starts off as one thing and turns into another. Mm-hmm. So initially, it's a man who's driving through the desert and his car breaks down and he sees a parade of giant creatures and he thinks he's about to get killed by them but he ends up not and then we kind of follow one of the creatures as it escapes to a nearby town and it ends up getting shot by the sheriff who also loses a hand in the Mm -hmm. process and then it spins into this revelation that these creatures live in the mountains and the desert but they will sporadically come and sexually assault a woman so that they can create a new progeny and that has happened with this family and the husband never really understood that the child wasn't his although he kind of did because he's incredibly abusive and terrible to both his wife and his son he ends up getting wrapped up in this vendetta that the sheriff has where we get a mob chasing after these creatures it ends up very badly for them as you would expect and the boy ends up being brought into this new family of monsters and they disappear into the mountains Mm -hmm. that's a very (laughs) i'm glossing over a lot of the details but brian what did you think of this one i kind of love this one this might be my favorite okay i i love one of my favorite things about barker is his ability to take things traditionally seen as monstrous and villainous Mm -hmm. and look at them from a different angle right and remind people that like you know, if you want to talk shitty, here's the human race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I did want to go back to your synopsis. Okay. And I, this is another thing where I'd like to hear if any of the, the women from uh, the the book club had any input on this. You mm-hmm. specified that the encounter they had with – that the demons had with Lucy in this flashback uh, was sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. I'll confess that's my term. I think people were a little uncomfortable with this idea that Lucy, she was made to have intercourse with all of these different monsters and then she became pregnant, but she liked it. Like she, she was excited to try and find monster dad again. She ended up loving her son. She never mm-hmm. considered, you know, aborting it or anything like that. And I don't know if it's a product of the time. It's tricky, right? Because I think we Mm -hmm. have to say that it is a sexual assault because it's not as though she... There was no attempt for consent. No, no. Like, it just happened. Yeah. And she was okay with it. So we can acknowledge that both of those things are true. Which is, you know, which is interesting because it's... It wasn't something I initially considered. You know, it's... Was there consent asked for and given? And in this case, there was no opportunity for that. You know, the way the story reads, you know, she's having sex with Eugene, who is awful. um, But the the monsters just pick him up, toss him aside, and then start having their way with Lucy, which, yeah, there's no point at which they ask, like, hey, can we do this? So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's assault. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about these things in very different terms nowadays than we Mm -hmm. did then. And the story doesn't really have an interest in exploring that except to kind of reassure us, hey, she's actually okay with this. Let's move on because that's not really the crux of the story. I just wanted to acknowledge that because I think it can be a little confronting to contemporary audiences when you read this. You're like, oh, she just got gang raped by like an entire horde of monsters. Mm -hmm. But the story doesn't want to unpack that. 
Exactly. And I think it's, you know, I think part of why for me revisiting that was because I didn't necessarily read it that way at first, but it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of important to, to make those distinctions. Yeah. When you have the opportunity to kind of like talk through this a little bit, it's, it's good to do that. Mm-hmm. So you haven't seen Lord of Illusions, which I'm fascinated by because the end of this short, when the mob ends up confronting this horde of monsters with an arsenal of weapons and the monsters have the ability to change the the texture mm. of the ground, and they end up imprisoning all of these basically marauders yeah. in a form of quicksand where many of them then become trapped in it because the ground then solidifies, and they become almost like human art pieces who are still alive but will obviously die because they're stuck in the ground now. And that's the end of Lord of Illusions. Yeah, that that's such a horrible. Like for as uh, fantastical and as descriptive as he is for these demons, and as mm-hmm. gnarly as these, uh, you know, as these battles between the humans and the demons get, the most disturbing thing is thinking about the one guy who gets swallowed up in quicksand up to mm-hmm. only his nose and his mouth sticking out. It's horrifying. Barker, I, I feel like, is very deliberate in saying, like, and then it forms back into rock. Like, mm-hmm. he's not he's not just in hard ground. He no. is encased in rock. There is no opportunity to rescue these people. Like, there's, yeah. there's a They're throwaway dead. line where it's like, oh, somebody go and, like, fetch other people. We'll try to dig them out. And it's... It's just so obvious. Yeah. These people are doomed. Yeah. Like, they will die here. There a is no slow hope of rescue. and painful death. Like, yep. it is... That is going to be awful. <laughs> it's going to be so terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, especially when you consider the guy that's encased in the rock will probably last longest because he's going to have the least exposure. Mm. So, like, basically just this, for all intents and purposes, this nose and a mouth is just going to have this, like, horrifyingly excruciating existence for however many, you know, hours or days that he's mm-hmm. able to survive there. That's just, ugh, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah. The the other thing I really, really enjoy about this particular story is the descriptions of the different types of monsters, because they're not uniform. Mm-hmm. And they're not just like, oh, this one's really tall, and it's got a tail and spikes or something. It's like, they defy comprehension when you start to read how some of these look. In a way that like, I couldn't even really picture them. And I think that mm-hmm. wasn't a drawback to Barker's right? descriptions, I think that was part of the point. You know, it's kind of similar to when we're going back to uh, the uh, the volume one story in the hills and the cities, mm-hmm. where you almost can't grasp, you know, his description of these people coming together to make this giant person. Right. This is a similar thing where it's like he's giving you these flashes of description, just enough to let you know, like, there's nothing your brain can connect this to to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. It breaks your mind. Yeah. It's fantastic. I I definitely ended up leaning towards Bruckner's vision of the Cenobites and the new Hellraiser in terms of like how things that shouldn't be together or like how does this creature even survive the way that it's constructed? Like that was kind of how I ended up envisioning some of these. But I love the fact that they all work together even though they don't seem like they should work as a collective. It's just... It's such a a weird, nebulous kind of concept, and yet he absolutely makes it work. Yeah, and it it goes back to that idea of (laughs) 
human ignorance of the mm-hmm. if it's something we can't wrap our minds around, we won't accept it and we'll want to destroy it because yes. that's our impulse. Like, I don't understand this. It must be a threat and I need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're given every confirmation that these monsters have been living out in the desert for ages. And it just so happened that these townspeople have encountered one. But the minute that they're confirmed to be real, they just gang together, grab all their guns like good old Americans and <laughs> head out into the desert to kill the thing that's different. And I love that like they are driven by a singular sort of passion and mission and they just absolutely get their asses handed to them because they have no concept what kind of fight they're getting into. But, you know, they feel like they are entitled to go out and destroy something because, oh, it looks weird and different. Yeah, yeah. And it's, on one hand, you know, you kind of want to investigate, like, well, why is Barker just picking on, like, these small town, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's the, the easy target, you know, of, like, the bunkin' idiots. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a point to be made in including Davidson, who is the traveler who's going mm-hmm. through the town. He They make a point like he's from back east. He's kind of the city boy. And he just kind of like – he goes along with it. You know, he yeah. he in, in he some ways thinks himself it. better and smarter. Yeah. Yeah. But like when – it comes down to it like yeah he he goes along with it so it's it's i have to think he added that character on purpose to kind of be that to represent mm-hmm. that mindset yeah and and just kind of remind us that like you know it's not just the bumpkins it's not just the small town folks that we all like to you know look down our noses at and kind of see them as being the problem like we're the problem too mm-hmm. but again am i giving worker too much credit i don't know <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this one, in a strange sense, is the most open-ended because, well, it definitely has this start with Davidson getting stuck in the desert as his car breaks down. The way it ends, it's really unclear, like, where does this story go from here? Like, yeah. the the intention is almost to give you a snapshot of what happens in these very strange kind of 12-hour period, and... I like the almost playfulness of that, you know, it's like you can take from it what you will, but this to me feels like the story that you could really expand or revisit and gain new appreciation or different insights from. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a really good use of the form. You know, it's a short story. It's a platform where you don't necessarily have to have like a fully structured beginning, middle and end. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, Barker kind of showing here that he's he's good at writing stories of any length. You know, he can right. do full blown epics, and I'm sure you know. I know we've been kind of dancing around the fact that one day we might have to cover one of those, and mm-hmm. you know, that'll be a little bit of a marathon for us. But <laughs> have to, yeah. <laughs> Scare quotes. <laughs> uh, he's, but he he can also do a novella, and he can also do short stories, and he knows how to use those different lengths to his advantage. And I think he does that here where he does leave, like he gives you these slices and these hints of what's going on. And he leaves things very unresolved at the end of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think he does that on purpose. Like, you know, what have we accomplished here? You know, the, the, the whole reason the, the demons did what they did was because they wanted to create a, for lack of a better term, a hybrid, someone who is both human and demon to kind of connect these two worlds. And at Mm -hmm. the end of it, the kid's killed. 
so it's like, you know, the kid is dead. Uh, some of the demons have been killed. The yeah. posse is screwed. So oh, it's God, just yeah. like what if, at the end of the day, what's going to accomplish? Like, why? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really leaves you, if, if anything, I almost think that this is one of the more nihilistic stories mm-hmm. of this volume, because you just feel like, well, what was all this bloodshed for? Like, particularly when that kid dies, mm-hmm. I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's all by design. Like, I don't think this was, I don't think this is something where he, you know, inadvertently left loose threads. I think he, this mm-hmm. is a story from someone's like, why do we do this shit? Like, yeah. what is wrong with us? That what is wrong with us? The yeah. human race is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's transition into the final story. New murders <laughs> in the room org. <sighs> <laughs> this is a disappointing story to end this volume on. Right? Really? I I don't like this one. I find it really boring. Uh, I appreciate the the gimmicky nature of it. Like it kind yes. of within that idea of like it's fun to see cuz you know we had just done uh Paul Kane's Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that gimmicky kind of story where it's like someone's done yeah we're doing somebody else's yeah thing we're doing a twist on fits. somebody else's thing yeah. um and i feel like barker does poe in the clive barkerist way imaginable where he goes <laughs> oh poe wrote this story about an orangutan who kills people i'm gonna mm-hmm. write this story about a gorilla who kills and fucks like yeah is there any more clive barker approach to a to like doing a twist on a material than that you know what you're right in that regard so we can give barker credit for trying something and and you know there is a certain sense of playfulness in trying to do an edgar Allan poe story in the most clive barker way i think for me the reason the story doesn't really land is because we're all so familiar with the poeness of it all that it doesn't really this feels more poe than barker and the barker Mm. stuff needed to be either amped up or more interesting because the only parts I really latched onto, I didn't find the protagonist who's like a 73-year-old man who's there because his brother-in-law, I think, is been accused of murdering a sex worker. I think it's just his friend, Philippe. Just his friend. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Philippe loved this girl, and then she was brutally murdered, like body just absolutely destroyed by something, and he's been imprisoned in Paris so this man shows up to try to figure things out like what happened and it's eventually revealed that yes this is an orangutan who philippe had been training to act like a human so it had shaved itself it had rudimentary speech and it was attracted to other redheads because <laughs> it was mistaking them i guess for mates yeah that's all fine the the parts with the actual orangutan and how it was trying to adapt and even like live its own life when philippe wasn't there to rein it in those were the parts that i was interested in but even that i was kind of like okay is this what we're doing (laughs) i think i will admit that i think of all of the stories we've done so far this is the one that seems more like a playful exercise than anything else. Like, I don't know that yes. he's necessarily trying to explore anything. He's just yeah. trying to be like, hey, can I, won- I do it? I wonder if I can barkify this, this Poe story. <laughs> barkify? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I, I think he does to some extent. Like, yeah. this just, uh, and it's, I don't know, it's, it seems frivolous and I'm okay with that. Like, it's, okay. it's, it's not, 
I think I, I definitely get the idea that he's not necessarily doing anything super interesting mm-hmm. in terms of exploring any themes here. Right. I was just more looking at it from like similar to, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Servants of Hell, someone who just really appreciates like a story and wants to see like, mm-hmm. hey, what what can I do with this? I'm going to have a little yeah. fun with it. And I appreciate that Barker is, if nothing else, what we're seeing across the course of these volumes is he is playful. He is experimental. He does want to try telling different types of stories in different links and that kind of stuff so i i definitely appreciate that for me it's that it's coming at the very end of this volume so i was looking for something meaty and exciting to kind of cap off things and it's coming on the the heels of the skins of the father which is it is that right it's audacious and weird and and telling kind of like a big story in a small package and i i almost wonder like if this story had been somewhere in the middle or at the beginning, I think I might have been a little bit more generous to it. Like the placement was a problem for me. I can see that. Like even if they had just like flip flopped. Right. Like this one and Skins of the Fathers and had that Skins of the Fathers be the finale, kind of the grand finale of this volume. Yeah. You, you could have seen yourself like, yeah, like we had that nice little and I feel like that would have that would have been better to kind of make new murders in the room work, just like that little like a little interlude or preamble before he mm-hmm. kind of goes out swinging with skins of the fathers. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a little too slight to end this volume on for me. In addition to being a story that I was like, eh, yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. not something I'm really gravitating to. Yeah. I can, I can see that it suffers by comparison kind of thing. Yeah. A yeah. little bit. So unfortunate to, end on what was not our most favorite of the shorts but that's okay that does end up wrapping up books of blood volume two before we tell people where we're going next brian how would they get a hold of you if they wanted to talk to you about any of these stories uh you can get me on twitter for however long that continues Uh. to last as a platform at evil taylor x (laughs) (laughs) yes and i can be reached at beast on my remote and that's the letter b Thank you, as always, to the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Yes, just recently crossed 200. Am I right? Woo woo! Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. It's been a wild ride with all these different pods. Um, yeah. So, Brian, we're, we're not done. We're actually going to head straight into Volume 3 for our next episode. But we did want to acknowledge that people have repeatedly asked us to cover peter atkins hellraiser bloodline the original screenplay so we're gonna do books of blood volume three next and then after that we're going to dive into that unproduced screenplay and i feel like i should make you watch hellraiser bloodline just so that you can do a compare and contrast right well, what do you mean make me like i, I just do that <laughs> we are we are staunch bloodline defenders on this podcast joe there will be no (laughs) forcing me to do any of that i'm just going to do it because i thoroughly enjoy that movie for as warts and all i love that Mm -hmm. yeah i'm super excited because i've been a ride or die fan for bloodline for basically as long as i have seen the film which is now coming up on dear lord like 30 something years (laughs) and uh no that movie's almost 30 years old it don't don't tell me that joe Mm-hmm. We're a couple years away, a couple oh, years away still, oh, but boy. it's nearly okay. 30. 
but yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna read those and compare them. And I'm super excited because I have heard so much about what the original cut of this film could have been like that yeah, I mean, I think it's just gonna be a really interesting conversation. Hashtag release the Jaeger cut. Oh my god. Honestly. I'm happy with the cut that we have because I think it's messy and interesting, but why can I not get a fulsome physical media release that has all of the different versions on it? I want to see it. I would buy it. I know it, it exists. I would people immediately buy it. People have told me they've seen it. Yes, there is There is demand. Like, people would purchase this. Like, yes. with, all, with all the other crap that comes out on, like, full Blu-ray editions, like, you don't mm-hmm. think people would buy a special edition like bloodline jaeger cut blu-ray right. i would buy two mm-hmm. it's so infuriating but you know what we will just have this rant again in two episodes when we do that coverage can't wait <laughs> <laughs> all right well that'll put a wrap on books of blood volume two and folks we will see you while we cover volume three next bye-bye bye Squad.